You know, as I introduced the book of Revelation last March, which was over nine months ago, I went through all the very important things like, you know, who wrote it, when did he write it, from where did he write it, and to whom did he write it. I I talked about what kind of literature it was. Is it prophecy or letter or apocalypse? And actually, it's all three. Um, I talked about the four typical approaches to interpret this book, preterist or historicist or idealist or futurist. Uh, Even within that last one, the futurist view, there is dispensational futurist and non-dispensational futurist. And perhaps your mind, like mine, was swimming through all that necessary groundwork. But I But I want to stop just a moment and remind you that I finished that introduction back in March with several very important thoughts, not the least of which is this. There will be a challenge in this book. You see, we can get so sidetracked by different systems of interpretation, drawing lines in the sand, timelines and and guesses and newspaper theology, trying to figure out dates or periods uh, periods of time and creating complex charts that before you know it, we have 88 reasons for the rapture in 88. I don't know if you realize it or not, but that was like 35 years ago. Missed it by that much, (laughs) which means if we're still here and it happened then, then you were left behind. (laughs) Okay, that was a joke. (laughs) We can get so sidetracked that we miss the major themes and the major purposes of the book. I mean, what's the point? So let me remind you of several of those thoughts. First purpose, you ready? Stay faithful. If there was ever a message for the evangelical church in the U.S. today, it is this. Stay faithful. Major theme of the book. This world and its systems will call and woo you to join them to worship false gods that may even sound somewhat Christian, to a to abandon biblical truth. Are we seeing that more and more, especially, especially recently in rather unbelievable ways? You'll be tempted to compromise and capitulate to national and world powers and to, and to pagan society. Politically, that may look a bit like this. For some, part, listen carefully, party affiliation is more important than a relationship with Jesus Christ. They will go to the mat over an elephant or a donkey and forget the lamb. Morally, for some, satisfying cultural demands, fitting in, is more important than biblical truth. Ah, but people don't believe that anymore. We do. Stay faithful to Christ and His Word, even if it costs you. After all, second theme, it's a fun one. Suffering is a way of life for Christians. When you refuse to give in to get along, to be accepted, you will be persecuted. It may come in the form, a mild form of being made fun of or ridiculed, or you might even be persecuted. Eventually, it will be martyrdom for some. I've said recently, some of the things that I have said from this platform over the years will eventually be against the law and could result in persecution, imprisonment, and maybe even death. And you say, oh, come on, Scott, you're so dramatic. Read the book. Read it. Here's the message. Persevere faithfully to the end. I want to say to you, if you are looking for your best life now, if you're seeking just to kind of fly under the radar and keep your head low, seeking what this world has to offer, your best life now, you're looking for the wrong thing and likely the wrong places. 
You may get it now, but you may not like it then. Third, in the end, good news. God wins. God is sovereign. And He reigns over all of history. Everything that has happened, that is happening, or will happen, is under His good and sovereign, I use that word intentionally, sovereign control. He's going to show up at just the right time. It's not that he's been absent, by the way. He's going to show up at just the right time when all of his purposes are accomplished, and he will pour out his righteous judgments and vanquish all evil. He will vindicate his children washed by the blood of the Lamb, which, by the way, is another key point of the book. He wins by the death of his Son, and we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And that it is then that the best, the best, by the way, are the new heavens and the new earth. If you're looking for it here, wrong thing you're looking for. It is then that we will have our best life because then the new heavens and the new earth will come for those whose names are written in the blood-stained Lamb's book of life. Finally, fourth. Remember, this book is called the Revelation. John titles it. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is this book, not just revelation, but this book is all about Jesus. If we take our eyes off Christ and focus on images and systems and current events and prophetic guesses and timelines, besides making a fool of ourselves, we'll miss it. Rather, we will miss Him. I don't want us to do that. And so I shared this, with, this chart with you some Months ago, this book calls him the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, the Alpha and Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the first and the last, the living one, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth, by the way, the Son of God, the one who is holy and true, the holder of the keys of David, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Lord holy and true, the Word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Christ ruling on earth, the Root of David, the bright and morning star. That is who we worship. Where's Hunter? I want you to write a song on that. Have all of that in there. <laughs> he didn't take up my plaid pants um, challenge, so maybe he'll write a song with all that. This, that's not even all of them. I don't want you to miss Jesus. Many times through this book, when faced with these kinds of descriptions, the ones present, whether they be the four living creatures, the 24 elders, myriads of angels, and even the church fall to their faces at his feet. Here's a question for you. When is the last time you were so overwhelmed with who Jesus is that you fell on your face at his feet? That's what this book is for. Regardless of your understanding of the book, there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. This book is about Him. Say all of that to remind us where we are, where we're going, and more, whose we are. You see, about now, all this war and death and mayhem and destruction and judgment may be getting just a bit old. I get that. I mean, the first words of our text today is, and there was war in heaven. Yay! Between angel, the archangel, I mean, between Michael, the archangel, and, the angel, and his angels, and the dragon, Satan, and his fallen angels called demons. We have been in this slog of the judgments of God for weeks now, uh, maybe months. 
we've seen the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and we still have the seven bowls to go. And now, instead of racing to the finish, we're just beginning yet another interlude, an interlude where we meet the principal figures, the principal combatants, if you will, in this war, which, by the way, is another key theme in this book. There's been a cosmic battle between God and Satan. It's not a fair battle, to be sure. There's only one. But there's been this cosmic battle between God and Satan, between sovereign goodness and worldwide evil since the beginning of time. You see, listen carefully. While we are shocked by the things we see going on in our own country, we can't believe what is happening before our very eyes. These atrocities and immoralities have been happening since creation. It's just getting worse like it's supposed to. It's all according to plan. It's what happens in our country, when you turn your back on God. Read Romans chapter 1. You want to turn your back? Here you go. I briefly surveyed that a few weeks ago with the creation of Adam and Eve in the fall when tempted by the great serpent. They did the very one thing that they were prohibited from doing. They ate the forbidden fruit and plunged humankind into sin and death. But, but, but in the midst of the cursing, we, we remember the promise, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, whose birth we just celebrated a week ago, last Sunday, will crush the head of the serpent. All the Bible points to that fulfillment when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So while we were in the season of Advent, we not only looked back to celebrate the first coming of Jesus, we looked forward to his second coming when all evil will be vanquished. That's what this book is about. It is actually a book of hope, so be encouraged. But first, the plan must be finished. In our study, all of the pieces are now being moved into place. Think of it as a chessboard, only there's not two kings, there's only one, and he's not on the board, he's moving the pieces. Glorious end and the eschaton, by eschaton I mean the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, it, the eschaton will come. But we, we still have the rest of chapter 12 and then chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 until we finally get to chapter 19, the glorious return of Christ. And then we've got to go back in chapter 20 uh, to the great white throne judgment when, and then Satan and his evil minions and unbelievers are thrown forever into the lake of fire. I guess all of that to remind us today, I want to say to you, hang in there. This is God's Word. I'm trying to take as large a chunks at a time as I can, but I refuse to skip anything because God has graciously revealed to us that He will accomplish His purposes in this world and, frankly, in your life. He's at work. With all that in mind, let's get to the text, sort of. The seventh trumpet has sounded. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. John, of course, there is speaking proleptically. That is, the fullness of the kingdom is not yet here, but it will most assuredly come. And all of heaven will fall to their faces before God, worshiping Him with these words. We give you thanks, O Lord, God the Almighty, who are and who were, not who is to come, because He's already here, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. We long for that day. And so, of course, the, na the nations rage. We're 
certainly seeing that more and more as even now Christianity is being attacked. I don't know if you know it, but the, the woke are now being awakened to attacking us. Christian faith, right along with exercise, by the way, has been declared racist and bigoted and oppressive. It is, after all, an, yet another form of white supremacy. And I want to tell you how absolutely moronic that charge is. Those who make the claim have not done their homework to know that Christianity did not begin in Europe. It began in the Jewish world. And that today, the greatest advance of the faith is found south of the equator in Latin South America and black Africa. It is also estimated that there are over 100 million Christians in China. It is not a white man's religion of oppression. It is a worldwide faith of brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, and socioeconomic status. But the, these attacks against the faith are all part of the enemy's tactics to destroy our faith. Don't believe it. Don't fall for this nonsense. I have read so many books on these topics recently. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Another Gospel. We Must Not Be Silent. Live Not By Lies. No Need to Hide. The Secular Creed. The one I'm reading now, Almost Finished. The Men We Need. On and on the list goes as faithful Christian leaders are exposing the work of the enemy as he tries to woo and destroy the Christian faith. Do not, my brothers and sisters, listen carefully. Do not give in. Do not be distracted by or believe in the lies of the enemy. The United States used to be a bastion of Christian truth, and it is anything but. Nations, you see, are raging. But God's wrath is coming. The time is coming for the dead to be judged and time for the faithful to be rewarded. His prophets and, and His saints, those who fear His Name. Do you see that? They don't fear the repercussions of this world's godless system. They don't fear those who rise up against us and against the faith with all kinds of crazy nonsense. They don't care what the world thinks as, they, as the world dismisses God and His truth. No, saints fear God. And so chapter 11 ended, and there will be peals of thunder and flashes of lightning because God's wrath is eminent. At this point, John, chapter, beginning of chapter 12, we looked at a few weeks ago, then takes us back to the, this panorama of time. A great sign was seen in heaven, a woman clothed in glory, sun, moon, and stars. She was revealed, and she was a woman found to be pregnant with the seed of the promise, the Christ to be born. But, but another sign was also seen, a great red dragon who sought to devour the child as soon as he appeared. This was simply the next step in the ongoing cosmic conflict between God and the forces of evil led by the evil one. The, the woman, perhaps as a type in Mary, not a type of a type in Mary, was actually the nation of Israel who brought forth or produced the Messiah as promised, by the way, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to, uh, to Judah and, and, and to David, all the way through the Old Testament and all the way through the Old Testament prophets. So the, dr the dragon knows this. He's not stupid. The dra well, yeah, yes. The dragon was ready to devour the male child, the Son of God. He tried over and over at his birth 
and through his life. We looked at Matthew chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago. Then we looked at Matthew chapter, we also looked at Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation. He was trying to destroy the Son of God. He failed miserably. Jesus was born, lived a perfect life, proved his divine person through his teachings and miracles, died for sinners, was buried and raised again the third day. He ascended to the Father. And so now, the dragon has turned his attention to the woman. That is the nation that produced the child. Now, some want to suggest that he turns his attention to the church. I think he does, but not, this is not what it means. The church, uh, you see, the, the church did not produce the Messiah. The Messiah produced the church. So the dragon turned his vehemence on the woman who produced the Messiah, the nation of Israel, who was protected by God for 1,260 days. That's exactly, do the math, 300, uh, excuse me, three and one half years. I personally think that that is representing the last half of the tribulation of seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. Bringing us to our text today, finally, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7, all the way to the end of the chapter, big section, I told you. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waging war, waged war, and they were not strong enough. Hallelujah. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. A thousand hallelujahs. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. That's who the dragon is. Who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who, uh, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. And because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Oh. Come on, Scott. Well, there it is. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he, is, he has only a short time. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, that's Israel. But, but the, the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. This is weird. Like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony. Jesus. Think about that. Could, could that be you? As usual, there are lots of guesses and interpretations of this text. I do my best believing this to be primarily future. Question for this text at this time is how much future? You see, some want to suggest 
that this was Satan's initial expulsion, his in, initial eviction from heaven before creation. Others want to suggest that it happened at the crucifixion and resurrection, when Jesus conquered the devil by his completed crosswork. Still others want to suggest this happens at the end of time in this continuing conflict, now at its climax. As I take a futurist view of the book, I hold loosely to that third option. You see, the dragon tried to devour Jesus at his birth, and frankly, tried to devour him throughout his life. But Jesus accomplished his purpose for coming, and so, having done the work, ascended to the Father. The dragon then turned his attention to the woman, that is, the nation of Israel, and to her children. I believe her children is the church. We'll see that in a little bit. Does this mean throughout the church age or from the, uh, from the ascension uh, to the second coming? Does this mean at the end of time right before the second coming? Uh, again, both ideas I think carry weight, but I hold to a future culmination. I think things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And, and the, dragon's op- uh, 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 the dragon's opposition to God's people to include the church is going to get worse and worse and worse. Are we not seeing that today? Does this surprise anybody? Here's the outline of the text. We're going to see the war in heaven. We're going to see the praise of heaven. And then we're going to see the corresponding war on earth, starting with the war in heaven. Again, let me come back to that. The most obvious question is when did or when will this take place? Three, those three primary options. The problem with this being his initial eviction from heaven before or at creation is we see Satan in heaven as the accuser of the righteous throughout the Old Testament. For example, in the book of Job, accusing Job. In the book of Zechariah, accusing Joshua the high priest. If it was before creation, and he's accusing the righteous, where were they? Who were they? So at least, he, I believe, he had some access or place in heaven throughout the Old Testament. Now, it's certainly possible that this happened at the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. The cross, listen carefully, write this down if you're taking notes, the cross was clearly Christ's victory over sin. I said this a couple of weeks ago, the death of Christ was not Satan's victory, it was his defeat. It was God's victory. Satan never would have had Jesus die on the cross. You see, verse 11 says, those the dragon attacked overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. So this eviction could be at his crucifixion. But, but the next verse, verse 12, says that Satan's time is very short when he's evicted. And verse 14 talks about the woman being nourished for a time, times and half time. That's another way of saying three and a half years. All, all this leads me to a future war and eviction resulting in severe um, opposition to the people of God in the latter part of that seven-year tribulation period. It's what I think, if you hold something different, fine. So what we have... Sometime in the future, perhaps in the middle of the seven-year tribulation, Satan is ultimately and finally, hallelujah, cast from heaven. Starts with Michael, the archangel, and his angels waging war with the dragon. The wording is such that Michael initiates this conflict. The dragon and his angels fight back, but they are not strong enough, of course. And so there is no longer a place for them in heaven. Jesus perhaps speaks of this in Luke 10 when he says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Michael. Now, we first read about Michael in Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel was praying for an understanding of a vision that he had just received. 
And ain't God dispatched an angel to tell him what the meaning of the vision, but you perhaps know the story. He was delayed for 21 days by the prince of Persia, seemingly a demonic power over that area of Persia. But then we read that Michael, one of the chief princes, or that's why we call him the archangel, came to his rescue, defeated the prince of Persia. Further, then we read in Daniel chapter 12, very, very interesting verse. And there it is talking about the future. Now at this time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Whoa, 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 just a minute. Israel faced lots of distress. I mean, was this talking about, is this talking about when they were in Egypt, in, in slavery? Is this talking about the Babylonian captivity or maybe the Assyrian captivity? Is this talking about the, the, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Or maybe this is talking about the Holocaust. Or maybe, maybe, maybe it's talking about the end of time that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. Because you see, he goes on to say, and at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book will be rescued. And we'll talk about this first, but very briefly, it seems to point to this time when the woman is pursued by the dragon to the desert, a time of distress as is never seen before, but she will be preserved, we assume, by God, perhaps through Michael, who stands guard over this nation. Some suggest that Michael is the guardian angel of the nation of Israel. Don't want to get sidetracked by all of that. The point is, I believe Satan was cast out, again, either at the cross, that's fine, or sometime in the future, right at the end of time, cast out of heaven by Michael and his angels. Right now you're going, this is more information than I even want. I know, just hang in there. We find in verse 9, the great dragon is the devil. And Satan, the, the Greek and Hebrew word, this speaks of him being the accuser of the brothers. He's the great serpent who first tempted Adam and Eve and cast the world into sin and rebellion. The one who to this day deceives the whole world. Look around. Their eyes are blinded by Satan, deceived by him. Next week, we're going to look at Revelation 13. It's going to be amazing to us that the whole world is going to follow the dragon. What? They are already. He will be thrown down, expelled, ex evicted from heaven. By the way, these verses seem to be expanding on verse 6 which says the woman fled into the desert where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished or cared for for 1260 days, time, times, and a half time, three and a half years. We'll come back to that in just a moment. When Satan and his angels are thrown down to the earth, there will be a loud voice in heaven which declares uh, the, the fullness of the kingdom. Now saying what we find in verses 10 to 12, which brings us to our second point, the praise of heaven. Now, verse 10, the salvation, in that sense, deliverance and rescue. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been cast down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. That's what Satan, by the way, means. That's what the devil means. He is the accuser. I want you to understand that his two primary weapons, yeah, he's called the father of lies and, and he blinds it. Listen, 
He is first an accuser. He is standing before God accusing you. But Jesus stands there to defend you by his blood. Second, he is the deceiver. And he is currently deceiving an awful lot of people. Listen, all the people that you know of who used to be part of the church of Jesus Christ, maybe in part of this church who have left, they have been deceived. They have been deceived. And underlying that departure is some sin that they want to embrace. Always. In always. Some sin that they want to embrace. He's a, he is a deceiver. He is an accuser. He has accused God's people before God since the beginning of time. I mentioned Job. With Job, Satan accused, not actually Job, he accused God of buying Job off. Read Job 1 and 2. The only reason Job praises you is because of all of your good gifts to him. You're just buying his praise. Take away the gifts and he will curse you. He didn't. But that's what he was accused of. He accused the high priest of Joshua before God in Zechariah 3. We assume accused him of the sins of the people. And the Lord rebuked, saying, the Lord rebuke you. And he took off, listen to this, this is a glorious picture. He took off Joshua's filthy clothes and clothed him in clean clothes, which is exactly what God does for us. He takes off our filthy, sinful clothing and clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. That's how we overcome them, by the blood of the Lamb, so that our robes are washed white as snow. Now, Satan has been cast out of heaven. He no longer has access to accuse God's people before God. He was constantly and consistently doing so to no avail because God knows those who are his. But Satan has now been cast out. Verse 11 tells us how they overcame. I mentioned this already. Satan's accusations against them. Don't miss it. It was not by their own goodness. You're not going to overcome Satan. But by your own goodness, by your own power, by your own works, they overcame Satan. You will overcome Satan and his attacks and accusations by the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. That is the tes testimony about Jesus. And they did so in the face of much opposition, such that they did not love their lives even unto death. Can you imagine maintaining testimony of the, maintaining the testimony of Jesus to the point of death. It's coming. Remember the thoughts with which I began this book and the sermon today. Stay faithful to the end. Even though the way of life for Christians is suffering. It is. But in the end, God wins to the praise of the glory of our Christ. What is the worst that they can do to us? They can oppress us. They can persecute us. They can kill us. They can do that physically. They can do nothing to us spiritually. We are held in his hands. That's the point. We overcome such opposition as we stay faithful to Christ. We overcome by his blood that saved us. Verse 12, for this reason rejoice, O heavens, and those who dwell on them, because Satan has finally been cast out. There is praise in heaven when he no longer has access to accuse God's people and woe to the earth and the sea. Next week we're going to see in Revelation 13, two beasts are going to arise, one from the earth and one from the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath knowing that his time is short. He is desperate and he hates you because not only are you created in God's image, but you have declared your allegiance to God.
bringing us to our final point, we're on earth, verses 13 to 17. Again, I think these verses expand on verse 6. Let me just make a couple of comments about this. The dragon is cast down in his fury. He turns his attention to the woman who gave birth to the male child, the Son of God. He will seek to persecute her, the nation of Israel, and beyond the people of God, as we see in just a moment. The woman, however, was given two wings of an eagle. Remember, this is apocalyptic imagery. Don't be bothered by this. To escape the wilderness where she will be nourished for a time, times, and half time. So they said in verse, this is what John said in verse 6. The only time in the New Testament we talk about time, times, and half time. That comes from the book of Daniel. Talking about three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months, second half of the tribulation. These wings of an eagle is a common Old Testament expression which should be near and dear to our hearts because it speaks of God. Listen carefully. It speaks of God's protective care. When the Israelites were delivered from Pharaoh in Egypt, God said to them in Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, we see basically the same words. And of course, we're all familiar with Isaiah 40 because we often misquote it. But it's talking about God's protective care. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength and they will mount up with wings like eagles, not your wings, His wings. And they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The point is, God will take care of His people in the midst of this war. To be sure, I'm not going to paint a pretty picture for you. I'm not going to lay out a rose-strewn path for you. To be sure, persecution will come. We will be oppressed. We may even be killed. But this, my brothers and sisters, is not all there is. And God will take care of His own. Here, I think it is referring to the nation of Israel at the end of time as the nation was the one who bore the child. Look at verses 15 and 16. Again, simply metaphors, apocalyptic images to speak of the serpent's attempts to go after the woman. Water poured from his mouth to pursue the woman, to sweep her away. Literal water, probably not. Likely speaking of a flood of opposition and persecution. He he seeks to unleash on her. Remember what Daniel 12 said, worse than anything they've seen before. But the earth itself opened its mouth and drank the river to protect the woman. In some way, the earth and the wilderness protected the nation from Satan's onslaught, which finally further enraged the dragon. Listen, this is where you come in. It's the fine print of the Christian life. Hey, forgiveness of sins, heaven is a home, fine print. The dragon will go off to make war with the rest of her children. Who are they? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's one of the strongest verses to speak of the presence of believers in the last days. They're there. He's going to come after you. Satan will turn his attention to all those who have believed in Jesus, not just Jews now, but Gentiles as well, who by nature of their faith in Jesus seek to keep his commandments, and it's going to cost you. And so, having declared our allegiance in this age-old cosmic battle, the commander of the enemy forces of evil will turn his attention to believers in Jesus. Listen very carefully to the church. He hates you. Do not miss the point. 
God will take care of His own. Ultimately and finally, none of this, I'm done. None of this takes God by surprise because it is all unfolding according to plan. Remember, this is a book of hope. It's a book of encouragement. Who is the sovereign one? It's not Satan. The question is, where does your allegiance lie? Where's the lie? Are you being sucked in by the culture and its lies? Are you wanting his acceptance by the culture and the people around you to include unbelievers? Or is his acceptance by them more important than declaring your allegiance to Jesus Christ? I want you to understand that in the end, our sovereign God wins. Let's pray. Father, we bow in your presence and we're thankful that we can read the end of the book. We we know what is coming. This should not take us by surprise. Everything that is going on in our country should not take us by surprise. And yet, and yet, with everything that's going on in our country, the, the church of Jesus Christ in the U.S. is a disaster. It's a mess because acceptance by people is more important than acceptance by God. Oh, Father, may we not be that way. I want to right now publicly, out loud, I want to declare my allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I believe that that is true of most people in this room. We declare our allegiance to Jesus, come what may. We will be faithful followers. We will be biblical followers. We will not jettison truth just to go along and get along. To be accepted by those who don't even know you. We declare our allegiance. And we know that in the end, you will protect us spiritually and that the best is yet to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.